Hey guys, thanks for joining us again for this week on the alt-right. This is a twice-weekly show now, Wednesdays and Fridays at this time on this channel. Um, I have the usual guests um, joining me today, including my co-host, Mark Collette. Um, so we won't be doing lengthy intros because uh, we think you know us enough by now. Um, all of everyone's details are in the description if you want to find more from them, like their Twitter or their YouTube, etc. We will be taking your questions, so please put them in the chat and Mark will note them down for when we're going to take them. And Mark has been uh, deciding what we're going to talk about today. So what is the main number one topic you want to discuss, Mark? Well, it's not just me. <laughs> don't, don't give me all the credit. Um, the biggest thing this week is actually something that people were asking about on Wednesday's show. But obviously, we went for a record three hours on Wednesday. So it was better not to approach another major topic um, when it was coming so close to three hours. But one thing people were mentioning in the chat, and it was something that actually Bree mentioned to me, was Charlottesville. Obviously, Richard Spencer and the alt-right turned up in Charlottesville again. And they had a very successful torchlit parade. And again, it was successful because there was no trouble. And we often get asked on this show, well, you talk about a lot of negatives, you talk about things that are wrong with society, you talk about problems facing the Western world. Well, why don't you talk about positive solutions, ways forward, things people can do that will be productive and lead to a positive outcome. Now, this was obviously a positive outcome because it was a nationalist event. It was something that looked aesthetically very, very pleasing, but there was absolutely no trouble. There was no arguments, no fights, no Antifa, no counter demonstrations, no Black Lives Matter. And I think this is a really good way forward. This is an argument that I've actually had with people here in the UK. I had this argument with the people from National Action before they got outlawed as a terrorist group. And actually I fell out with them over this because they were desperate to have large demonstrations that they announced months in advance. So when they did turn up, there was always such a large counter demonstration, they more or less got kettled and nothing good came of it. They ended up just covered in rotten fruit, veg, rotten eggs, things that people threw at them. There was always violence and they always looked like the smaller and sort of outnumbered group. But I suggested to them, look, when you're a small force, you've got to operate by the rules of guerrilla warfare. You can't tell a bigger enemy you're going to meet them on the open battlefield and defeat them because it's a numbers game. But if you do just turn up, if you have one of these flash demos, you control everything, where you go, when you turn up, you control exactly how you put yourself over because there is no opposition. And I think the flash demo is the best form of guerrilla warfare, in inverted commas, because we're not terrorists or anything, don't try and twist my words. And I think what they did in Charlottesville was exceptional because when you do things like this, you control it. That means when you take the pictures, when you record it, when you put things towards the media for them to cover it, you control every aspect, which means you are the ones who are essentially painting the narrative. And I think that's very important. Um, so I'm going to open up the debate on this. And it's only right to give it to Fashi Brie straight away because she was the one who actually put me onto this. So what are your thoughts on this, Brie? I completely agree. I think it went off flawlessly because it was planned in the same way that Charlottesville 1.0, which I attended, was sort of planned in the sense that it was vetted. 
We knew exactly who was coming. We knew exactly what our numbers were. We had bodyguards who were surrounding the group in case anything did turn out to be violent because we did have a multicultural festival going on nearby. But I completely agree, doing these flash demonstrations is what really works for, say, Generation Identitaire. You get in, you get out, and it normally goes off without a hiccup. And one great thing about doing this where it's vetted is when we have control of the narrative as far as the photographs. One of the main things that happened at Charlottesville 1.0 was that we had all the footage from the, I forget the name, was uh, the thing that flies around and takes photos. The name escapes me. But we took all the photographs, we took all the film, so that when the media came knocking around, they couldn't use any of our images. They could call us names, but I actually had NBC and CBS contact me wanting to use my photographs. So when we have control over these events and we vet them, they go off without a hiccup. That's exactly my thoughts as well. Um, now, another good person to bring in on this, because he was recently in Sweden at the Nordic Resistant March, and you could see him there, and that was, that was, I thought they came dressed very smartly. I thought they were you know, very uniformed and disciplined, which is something I like, but it did turn into a complete war zone. And I personally think, although they were doing the right thing and they're on our side, I think when it becomes a war zone, it does alienate the public to a degree. And this is something that Peter Sweden has talked about and something I'm sure he'd be very interested to give his opinion on now. Yeah, well, the problem that happened in the Gothenburg uh, was that uh, the police uh, they got the notice that the police was actually going to lead them into a trap to arrest them all who, who were flying ban they got the guys who were flying banners the police were going to arrest them all for hate speech so they didn't want that so instead of following the official uh, police lines they decided to break out and try and break through the police barrier which obviously ended with the whole thing being shut down and uh, a lot of guys being arrested anyway so i mean from their point of view yes they they were they were very organized and, you know, um, marched in a smart way. So they kind of did the right thing there, but then they messed up, uh, I think, when it came to disobeying the police there and trying to break break through the police barriers. Uh, I mean, uh, the best thing to do, I mean, just follow all of the things that, 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 that they give you. And if it turns out they go arrest you for having your banners, then, well, then they become a martyr for free speech and it looks good for them. And uh, so, um, yeah, otherwise, yeah, and, and, and as well, when they went and attacked the police, uh, they basically, it created a war zone there, as you said, and um, that obviously gave the media all of the images they wanted of these violent uh, Nazis attacking the police. Uh, so the media got all the images they wanted, and then it completely ignored all of the uh, violence from the Antifa side, uh, over, just, just a couple of hundred meters away. Uh, where I went in a kind of suicide mission, threw myself in there to, to record everything that was going on there. Um, yeah, I mean, when it comes to optics generally, I think it's a good idea to do a kind of uh, flash uh, flash mob, as you say, or at least or at least vet every single one that's coming uh, coming to an event. You know, look at what Generation and Terror are doing, like Bray said. You know, they, they're vetting the guys to know who they are. They, they don't risk getting any feds uh, coming in there with swastika flags and just messing up the optics. Uh, so I think uh, may, not necessarily you have to do a, a flash demonstration, but you have to vet all of the people that are attending. You have to vet them. Uh, and, you know, uh, that's the 
that's really crucial as so you don't get the feds with the source stickers you know because then the media gets the image they want they'll put them out we'll go all over the media and it will just uh, ruin the brand i think people people miss how important it is to have good optics to have a good brand uh, to have good pr uh, because to win over the mainstream that is really important i mean you know yes of course the media is going to try and label you nazis and so on anyway but if they don't have the pictures if they don't they don't get the ammunition to try and use against against you if you understand what i mean uh, so it's really important to control the narrative and uh, yeah i mean that, 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 that and that's 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 the positive thing if you get if you do a flash demonstration you only get you only get your own pictures uh, so it's there's a lot of um, uh, advantages with doing that way no i agree i agree what are your thoughts on this stephen this is uh obviously a very important topic. This is the kind of thing that I think it's good that we're talking about because, as I said before, we need to approach things in a positive manner. And we often talk about problems, but here we're talking about solutions. So what, what is your solution to this issue? Well, after Charlottesville, I guess the main brouhaha there where maybe 500 people showed up, maybe 700 people showed up in favor of white identitarianism and you know, in favor of these Confederate statues and stuff, there was a lot of voices of discouragement that were coming out. How can you possibly learn if people above you are really discouraging you? And so a uh, real emphasis that I had when everyone sort of partook in this thing was to be really encouraging. This is the way you get to learn and grow. And the fantastic thing that we saw with Richard Spencer was that they learned and they grew. Charlottesville 3.0, they showed up, flash mob, like 30 guys, they did the torches. You will not replace us. They sang, uh, you know, look away, look away, Dixieland. You know, they, they were singing together. And, you know, you can sort of identify with these people now. They're, they're organized. They're young. They're positive. And so, you know, getting into something that Greg Johnson has talked about. And Greg Johnson was on Bree's show recently. And, and I was just sort of looking into his thoughts on Charlottesville. And I thought it was so interesting that he was saying, we want to graft identitarianism to the tree of American culture, of American history. We don't necessarily need to adopt a whole new bag of tricks. We can graft nationalism and identitarianism to what's been going on in the United States for centuries now. And so he talks about showing up to common events. You know, we got Fourth of July next year. Who's going to show up and do stuff for that? Are identitarians going to align themselves with Memorial Day? Are we going to align ourselves with Veterans Day? Are we going to align ourselves with Christmas? What are the things that we're going to attach ourselves to? And, and I think it was a very clever point to make. You don't have to be this alien force to people. You want to become people that can be easily identified with. So uh, I'll leave you with this. One of the most powerful images that I saw come out of the Trump campaign was the family. There's a strong, you know, close-cut white man carrying his daughter, his wife, uh, his uh, son, and his wife is next to him. And they're walking through a jeering crowd of leftists. And they're just spitting vitriol at this family. And they got pictures of this. Or we, or we can think of the lady that got eggs thrown in her hair. She's trying to get into Trump Tower or whatever. She's getting eggs smashed into her. We can identify with people. Like, I see she was wearing a, a Broncos jersey. you know. So these are people that we can identify with. Um, and, uh, you know, spot on to Greg Johnson for thinking of that. Can I just, uh, just add something to what uh, he said there quickly, if that's okay. Um, 
I think you touched on a very important thing there with the, the Trump family, you know, getting in pictures of them, getting eggs thrown on them and so on, insulted. I think that's one thing that the right needs to learn is actually to to become uh, portray itself as the victim, really, um, because that's what the left has been doing, you know, with all these SJWs, the black, uh, you know, the African community, you know, they're always been portraying themselves as the kind of victims of white oppression. Uh, I think the right uh, and white people should actually start portraying themselves as being victims, because that's an incredibly smart mind game um, to play on people, uh, because then people feel sorry for you and feel some sympathy for you. It might not be the most honorable thing to do, but it's uh, it's a dirty trick, but it works. Uh, start playing the victim, you know, put yourself up to 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 kind of look like the victim in, in the media. Uh, that's an incredibly powerful tool. Oh, well, that's the whole basis of the existence of the Anti-Defamation League. So we can we can have our own, you know. We, we don't want a Holocaust. We're all about preventing the Holocaust against whites. So we can use some of that for ourselves. Andrew Anglin talked about that briefly as well. He said that if anybody at these rallies had been carrying just American flags, not Confederate flags or Nazi flags or any other flags, if they had just been American flags, the audience watching at home would have seen people just regular Americans being attacked with American flags. And that would have been good as far as portraying us as the victims or the innocent ones. And I think if we did that in the future, it would be adopting better optics than walking around with Confederate flags. I don't have a problem with the Confederate flag, but unfortunately there are too many people who do. Like the Confederates or not, they lost the war. We can't side with anybody who lost the war. It just looks bad. And if anybody out there had just been carrying the American flag and got attacked by the leftists, Again, it would have portrayed our side as the victims and would have created sympathy. That's some very good points. And let me just add a, a little bit of a British twist to this. Um, where the British National Party, and I was a leading member of the British National Party, I designed all their publicity material for the elections they won. And I can tell you this, where we positioned ourselves the best was when we positioned ourselves as a right, as a white civil rights movement. When we won in places like Barking and Dagenham, where immigrants were being housed before whites, we played that card. We said, look, this is unfair. Immigrants are coming here, and because they've got larger families, the council is housing them before families that have lived in the borough for decades. And people got on board. And when we won in places like Keithley and Bradford, we talked about the grooming scandal. We talked about whites being systematically abused by Muslims, and we said that the council had let them down. And even earlier, before I was even involved in politics, the BNP won a seat in Tower Hamlets in 1993, and their campaign slogan back then, when they won their first ever seat, was rights for whites. Because again, people from the Bangladeshi community were being housed before white people. They were being put first. And when we stand on a platform of civil rights for whites, that has a much greater resonance than constantly being negative or attacking other people. And I think if we position ourselves as protectors, then to people we look like we're on the, well, we are on the right side, but they can see we're on the right side. And it's all about positioning and marketing. I've got a degree in economics and marketing. I work in marketing. I know how important brand positioning is, and that is what we need to do. But I think Tara's got some machine, something she wants to say about this. Well, I just wanted to give my feedback on Charlottesville 3.0. Obviously, it is 
very much easier to criticize such a thing than it is to actually go and do it and organize it and be brave enough to actually stand there. I know saw one of the guys there wearing um, protective goggles as you might wear in a, a lab or something. Um, obviously for the the uh, pepper spray that was expected, luckily no one did get pepper sprayed, but it's not uncommon for this kind of thing to happen. So, you know, obviously want to acknowledge that people who show up to those things are very, you know, they're they're taking a real personal risk. Um, and I was very impressed with 3.0 in the sense that, you know, they managed to pull it off very cleanly, got some great pictures, um, didn't get any, uh, didn't make any opportunities for negative press. You know, even though, of course, the negative press came out, but it's not like they were feeding the negative press. Um, however, one thing I would like to see improved in future is I, I think we could, I think we could go with um, some more uh, mainstream appeal in the speeches that were given. I felt that they were a little esoteric. You know, they were a little bit referencing uh, online culture and memes, um, and in some cases, I felt like maybe uh, they. they they weren't things that the mass, you know, the normies could really relate to if they were like watching on television. I know I, for one, was like, "Why are they talking about Harry Potter?" <laughs> you know, and uh, I, you know, I think that's a little bit too esoteric. I think that we should try to appeal to uh, as many people as possible, and that's the only thing I'd like to see happen. But hey, it's a evolution. Now that they've discovered the strategy, they can use it again, and we can improve and improve and improve on the speeches and see how the public reacts etc i think steve made some excellent points with um using these uh you know memorial day etc because you know pre-1960 the majority of and pre-1940 absolutely the majority of americans had the same views that we have right now and the founding fathers certainly shared our views overall so the true America, you know, is actually what we're standing for when we when we talk about these things. What would you say, Steve? Right, I certainly agree. It's the true America that we're standing for. It's something that occurred to me as you were speaking. Oh boy, here we go. Okay, so you know, forgive me, but uh, the so the Waffen SS in <laughs> Nationalist Socialist Germany, National Nationalist Socialist Germany. Okay, they were the cream of the crop. All right. They were the cream of the crop. They were the, you know, best of the German stock. They were the Aryan st standard. Okay, so I just had to say that. So if we throw, if we talk about identitarians, we talk about the alt-right, we talk about whatever this sphere of influence is, this philosophy that, yes, we do hold the views that the founders of this country held. We ought to present ourselves as leaders, as the best that this society has to offer as the intellectual vanguard, as the philosophical vanguard. We, we got to get fit. We got to get right. We got to get organized. And if, if this doesn't happen, you know, there's a lot of things we, we talk about optics and we talk about stranding, uh, branding and strategy and stuff like this. But there's a lot that's in body language that is, you know, like 80% of a communication, 90% of communication is in body language. So if we're not fostering these young men to become really an elite in our society, I think we're we're missing out on a crucial point of advantage uh, that we can look to many, not just you know Germany. We can look to many examples of our history, of you know we talk about Romania. I mean, there's many places we could talk about 
where there was a cream of the crop and they really set the tone and they were leaders in their society. So this is sort of a leadership class that we're trying to foster here with this show and with many other efforts. That's certainly an interesting perspective. And one thing I would like to add to that is in the idea of being the best you can, if you're going to be a spokesperson for the movement, you have to be a good spokesperson. And part of that, Peter always uses the term optics. Part of that is being someone who can attract others. That means you've got to be fit, you've got to be healthy, you have to dress well, you have to be the cream of the crop. And if we're going to start talking about NS Germany, when you saw the Nuremberg rallies, they were a sight to behold. Whether you agree or whether you disagree with what they stood for, you can't argue that they held the world in awe. And if we want to be taken seriously, we have to be the best we can be. We have to embody the best of our people. Because if we're going to be the vanguard of this movement, we can't be losers. Losers attract other losers and they spiral into a pit of degeneracy together and they achieve nothing. On the opposite hand, winners attract winners. That's why we have to put ourselves forward as the winners. We have to attract the best in society. And one of the biggest problems nationalism has had is when they've attracted what I've called in my book, the Hollywood Nazi, beer bellied, you know, overly tattooed, sort of thuggish people who sit on the dole all day, that doesn't attract the people we need. And if you think I'm having a go at NS, well, no, because NS Germany attracted the captains of industry, it attracted writers, poets, sportsmen, it attracted, people who were the best in their society and we need to emulate that we don't want to have a gang of overweight slobs who live in a warehouse bemoaning you know that the rest of society is moving on without them we have to be the cream of the crop and believe me i work very hard and i'm in the office for long hours but i always find time to go to the gym i always find time to keep in shape and that's what we've all got to do because we're all ambassadors for this movement. And believe me, people are more likely to flock to others who are better. They're more likely to flock to people who are a beacon and who look good, who speak correctly and who act like gentlemen than they are to flock to people who embody all the worst facets of our society, gluttony, greed, laziness. We need to cut that out of our movement. Optics are important. Now, Kaylin, what are your thoughts on this? I know you were just uh, re-battering your mic, so I will now let you in on things. Yeah, it's interesting. I think one of the main reasons you have a lot of people coming out of university, a lot of young guys and going to the right and the alt-right and, and sympathizing with that is because of our optics and they are getting better, they are changing, they are evolving and also because of the degeneracy of the left. I mean, I'm basically backing up what you guys have just said. They go out of university thinking, oh my God, I've just endured three years of hideously dressed, insane, you know, far left uh, nonsense. 
looking at uh, you know looking at the way women are behaving on nights out at university, looking at the way people are behaving in university halls, and if they see people like us and they see people who are speaking properly and who care about respectability in the family, I think that's why they're flocking to us so much. It is working very very well, mainly as well because even though there were a lot of us in the past. They were drowned out because we didn't have the internet to show ourselves. The media only portrayed us with the worst of the worst photos that they could find at a rally of the drunkest person. Now people can see the respectable figures in our movement. And that's what's making a big difference. So it's a very positive thing. I completely agree. And somebody's also put in the comments, it's little things. I mean, somebody said in the comments, smoking is, is degenerate. And I think that's another very good point. When you're at rallies, don't be there with a can of beer in your hand. Don't be there with a fag in your hand. I don't know how many of you people saw the large rally that Tommy Robinson led in Manchester after the Manchester bombings. There were lads there with huge boxes of Budweiser handing out little stubby cans. There was guys smoking cigarettes. One person thought it was a good idea to turn up with a severed pig's head and hold it above his head while screeching wildly at the press. Those are the kind of things that make us completely unacceptable to the public. And frankly, I mean, I don't know what that guy was thinking. I mean, what goes through somebody's head when they think, you know what? Because it's not a snap decision. You don't just find a severed pig's head at your local Tesco's. You know, what was he thinking two days before? You know what? What's going to be really good is if I nip down to my local butchers, then I can raise that pig's head a lot while screaming wildly at the press like an orc from Lord of the Rings. You know, what on earth was he thinking? And that is an own goal. Front page of the Daily Mail, complete loon, you know, swinging a pig's head, you know, aloft. Rah! And that's it. Any good that could have come from that event was undone by that guy. Now, I know Bree's got a lot to say on this. Um, what are your thoughts, Bree? Well, it makes me think of something I heard Jared Taylor say when I was at American Renaissance, and he was talking about how the conferences changed so much over the years. When he first started them, it was mostly boomers who were attending and people who saw what civil rights had done to various communities in the South and such. And then he said, but... Recently, in this previous Amrin, with the oncoming of Identity Europa and all these new fresh faces coming about, it gave him such hope because of the optics they were displaying. If you look at these kids that are running Identity Europa, and I say kids lightly, like people in their 20s, they're clean cut, they're muscular, they look good, and that presentation matters so much. One of the things I love about Mark and your Instagram page is that you will post that picture of you looking a little bit buffer, training or hiking out in the woods, and that looks good to people because young men see that. They see these clean-cut guys from IE, and they want to emulate that. And when you stay fit, if you keep a healthy diet and you espouse these traditional values, Things get better for you. Women want to flock toward you when they see that kind of thing going on. It will help you attract a mate, and it will help the movement to look good when we have strong men and strong women that look and feel healthy. Well, thank you for saying that. It's, um, it's really good of you. But I will let everyone know, when I, the other week when I suggested Bree should be in the uh, kitchen baking us cakes when the... Uh, when the Civil War broke out, she told me that I was going to be the one in the kitchen while she was running down the street with an STG 44. So she's a pretty mean woman herself. <laughs> but I must say that I do agree, again, with what Bree's saying. It's, it's part of my life, the mountain biking, the gym, the running. 
I mean, I'm doing an event in a couple of weeks' time, a 10K hardcore assault course out in the wild at the end of October where it's not going to be the warmest. And people should be embracing these things because believe me, if you're the best you can be, at least then, if you don't achieve everything you want in life, you know you gave it your best shot. There's no point not getting anywhere and then saying, well, I might have got there if I, I put a little bit more effort in. And that's what it's all about. Be your best. And then at least if you don't make it, you don't have any regrets. What are your thoughts on this, Stephen? Because you obviously you wrote a book on self-improvement. Right, yeah, I've got a book called Make Self-Knowledge Great Again, and you have to be the change that you want to see in the world. So if we value, you know, there's this big thing that came out recently uh, against postmodernist architecture, and Paul Joseph Watson sort of blew the lid open on this, and he was pointing out how dead and dreary the buildings were. Well, we ourselves are temples, and if we go around looking like slobs, if we look like soy boys and manlets, and uh, you know whatever you want to call it, the thoughts you know we're going to be in trouble that's not going to be good for our movement so uh, you know that's one of my main points to make it, people are drawn to this there's this concept called sexual market value and you know it's it's basically roughly one to ten right are you a, are you a one are you a troll under the bridge are you a ten are you up there with Ivanka Trump what are you doing and everyone can everyone through fitness through good diet can raise their sexual market value at least a couple points. And that does draw in people. And we wanna make the alt-right sexy. We wanna make traditional values, traditional families, we wanna make all that sexy and appealing to people. We want them to sense the charisma that we have. And we can only do that if we take a chance on ourselves. We hit the weights, we go to these Iron Man sort of things, we do this Pilates, whatever it is we've gotta do, we get going on these things, people will see it. And, and they'll start to connect the ideas with the body. And, and that's where we're going to win. I completely agree. What are your thoughts? You're nodding your head furiously there, Kaylin. So you're obviously a, a supporter of this self-improvement. What are your thoughts on it? I don't really have much more to add than what Stephen said there. I mean, it's completely true. That's what a lot of people aren't are, haven't been doing for such a long time. A lot more people are doing it now, and it's become it's it's it makes our society greater. Um, yeah, I don't really have too much more to add to it, but it's uh, I agree completely. Well, 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 sex sells. Lauren Southern sells. Faith Goldie sells. I mean, they sell themselves. They're so beautiful, you know. And Mark, you were commenting before the show that if there's anybody that's thirsty for women. It's the all right guys because they're these masculine, higher testosterone guys that have been sort of shut out by their society. Where are the women? We want these guys reproduced. So women like Lauren Southern, Faith Goldie, very good for the movement. I think the other thing is when people fail in life, a lot of failings are due to a lack of confidence. I know guys that say to me, how do you go out and you meet women? How, how do you go out and speak to people? Well, it's actually very easy. You've just got to be confident. Because once you're confident, people want to listen to you. And that's not just about meeting women. That can be about anything. That can be about going out and getting a job. If you go into a job interview and you're unconfident, if you're not sure of yourself, believe me, people don't listen. No one wants you working for them if they're not if if you're not confident in who you are no women want no woman wants to date you if you're not confident when you walk into a bar if you love yourself 
If you love yourself, other people will love you and want to look at you. And if you've been to the gym, you've got into shape, you look great in your clothes, believe me, you walk in there with the kind of air of confidence that other people will find attractive. And, and not just women, men will want to be friends with you. You will attract other males who have similar goals. You know, alphas gather together. And that's what we need to do. We need to all give off an air of success and confidence because we're on a mission and we're not just on any mission. We're on the greatest mission that we could ever go on. We are saving the white race. So let's go out there and do it in the best way we can and get everyone on board. That is our goal. What are your thoughts, Peter? Hello, Peter. Uh I had an image here uh, I thought I wanted to share uh, that I took from uh, in Gothenburg. I don't know if you can see it on screen. Um, here was one of the guys from the Nordic Resistance Movement. Uh, I think it kind of fits in with what you were talking about, the image and so on. Uh, what do you think, uh, Mark? Well, he, um, he, d he looks in shape. He looks clean cut. You know, I, I look at somebody like that. And as I said, personally, I think we are too small. The establishment's not on our side, so I would not engage in open warfare with the enemy. It's like the Vietnamese. When the Vietnamese took on the Americans, they didn't say, right, let's have a giant tank battle, because they didn't have tanks. The Americans had tanks and helicopters and much better weapons. So the Vietnamese dug in, they placed traps, and they engaged in guerrilla warfare, and eventually they drove the Americans out of Vietnam. And I don't believe nationalism is big enough yet to take on the establishment, not in Western Europe anyway, it is in Eastern Europe, when you see the Poles march, there's more of them than there is um, police. And ultimately, I do believe that at the moment we need more flash demos. But that guy, he did look in shape, he looked very healthy, he had clean cut you know, looks, and that's the kind of guy we need. And, and I would say everyone on this panel looks good. Everyone in this panel keeps themselves in shape. You know, they all look, we all look clean cut people, you know, and that's, that's what we need. Nationalism needs to attract a better class of people and we need to move up the scale. Bree's um, got something good to say about this. I can just see she's uh, mentioning this in the private chat. Um, I, I was actually commenting on something else Tara had said. I don't think I have anything more to add to that. <laughs> oh, sorry about that. Tara does have something to raise, so I'll pass it back to Tara, our host. Well, I was just going to say, you know, talking about degeneracy and self-improvement and that kind of thing, uh, one big issue, and I personally don't like to bring this up too much because I'm female and this is a predominantly male issue and I don't feel like I'm criticizing males or anything, but I wanted to ask the males on this panel what their opinion is on pornography. Um, let's start with Steve. Right, so I was watching this film. It's the best. Mel Gibson makes the best films, and Hacksaw Ridge is no exception. It's one of his very finest. And it got me teared up because the first real 45 minutes of the film is a love story, and it's a love story from the 40s. And the way the main character treats the woman He's just enchanted by her. He cannot believe his eyes. And he is so assertive. He's so assertive that he wants to be with this woman. And he decides so soon that he wants to marry her. 
it's almost unfathomable these days that a man would fall in love with a woman like this and that they would fall in love and they would you know they went for a hike and they just went to the movies and were talking and this sort of courtship is almost unfathomable because of the innocence that has been lost we lost so much innocence because of the war, because of the wars world war 2 vietnam the explosion of leftism in the 60s uh, the abandonment of reason postmodernism and now pornography and so i just want to sort of hearken people i mean i i do want to talk about pornography addiction itself and pornography itself but this is an ideal this is a standard to sort of think of for all the young men out there look at this innocence Look at the courtship, the old-fashioned courtship. Look at how tastefully the love scene was treated by Mel Gibson in the film. They're, they're, they're mostly dressed. You know, the man's got his shirt off where he's in his boxers. And they kiss, and the, the lighting is warm, and that's all you see. That's the, that's the gist of it. It's like five, ten seconds long. And it's after their wedding. It's, of their, it's their wedding night. So this is a beautiful kind of innocence, and we really want to bring this back to society. This has been lost. This is something I've grieved over, is this innocence between males and females, this pair bonding, this you're my sweetheart and I'm going to be with you. We're young and we're going to spend the rest of our lives together. This is sacred, and we really want to bring that back. That's a very, very good point. Um, for anyone that's interested in this topic, I actually did an entire video on my YouTube channel about this called The Jewish Role in Pornography. And in that I discussed exactly how porn affects your brain and exactly who has been behind the pornographic revolution, shall we call it. But before I say anything more on this, because I don't really want to dominate the conversation, I would really like a female's perspective on this. What are your thoughts, Brie? Well, as far as the porn industry goes, you can always say men watch porn, men are addicted to porn, but what women have in this regard is romance novels, particularly erotica novels. Having worked in publishing and being a writer, the most popular genre out there, particularly for women, is romance. And the most popular venue of which to write that is indie publishing. I see more people going after the big bucks in publishing by indie publishing erotica novels than any other type of genre out there. And back when I was looking through the industry and looking to see what genres were hot, you'd be shocked at what people out there want to read, especially the women in some of the erotica novels that were out there. They had one thing that was like keeping it in the family, incest, but step-siblings. And this was hot. People made a lot of money writing that type of thing where it was stepfather and stepdaughter or stepbrother and stepsister. And it was just repulsive. One of the most popular uh, indie novelettes a couple of years ago was a book uh, by Jacinda Wilder called Big Girls Do It Better, which was just an egotistical piece about fat women and this really fat girl gets picked up by a really hot rock star and just rubbing the ego of women who are really overweight. And I now when I go to a used bookstore and I see romance novels, I see a ton of race mixing being pushed. Almost every single romance novel I pulled out was uh, 
like a, a black man and a white woman on the cover every single time. So this has definitely seeped all the way into publishing. And the fact that I was seeing it in a used bookstore means it's been going on for quite some time. So yeah, men might be addicted to, well, men are very visual. Men want to see the visual of porn. And women, I guess you could say, are a bit more imaginative. So they're hitting women with the degenerate porn in novels. That's a very good point. That is a very good point. What's the, what are your thoughts on this, uh, Peter? Well, I think, uh, obviously, uh, I'm a Christian as well, so I think porn is absolutely one of the worst things you could ever, from a, both from a Christian perspective and from a just a human, just from a natural perspective as well, it's just completely destroy. It's, it's, it's destroying natural uh, relationships, especially with the kind of really, really degenerate porn that they are pushing now as of late. Now, I could wonder who is behind this, but uh, there is uh, a lot of like really horrible uh, genres coming out now. You know, they have incest, uh, brother, sister stuff. It's just absolutely degenerate, nasty stuff. Uh, and uh, I mean, people, you know, people are my age, you know, as, as speaking as I'm youngsters, you know, people younger than me, like, every single guy that's like 15 year old he, they watch porn nowadays and you know they have it on the phone the quick and easy like maybe do it twice a day you know it's it, it really messes with with the young people's minds and they, they get them when they're young the same as they do with the you know it, it really messes with their minds and it destroys for a future healthy relationship um and yeah i mean it, it's it, I mean, there's so many studies which shows and proves that porn is actually harmful, harmful for people, uh, especially for young people. And uh, yeah, yet they continue to really push this, and it's uh, really easily accessible. It's uh, something, um, something I think is really, really important for people to stop watching porn. Um, I myself, uh, I kind of uh, enjoy going on YouTube, uh, watching like uh, kind of fifties uh, dating tips videos. That's kind of that's kind of more healthy thing, you know. That you should watch kind of those things. And there are loads of them on YouTube. Uh, just just go on YouTube, search like fifties uh, dating. You can get up like old videos from the fifties, like tips how to date. Uh, that's that's so much better stuff. Uh, and you know, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, don't watch porn. <laughs> Well, there's a there's a wholesomeness that we want to reclaim. Uh, you know, Peter, you sort of alluded to who's been running these, who's been running the porn industry, and it's very clearly a, you know a certain group of people. And what we've lost is is a wholesomeness. So when you refer to the 1950s dating videos, these sorts of things, something you know that I want to talk about is the relationship between fathers and daughters. A man who's, you know, severely addicted to pornography has looked at pornography his whole adult life consistently. There's a desensitization and there's an over-sexualization of women that occurs in pornography that men mainly consume. And when they go to be fathers and let's say they have daughters, they have these huge blind spots where they they don't have a real sense of how to shelter their daughters from the sexual perversions in the marketplace and in society right now. And so there's a level of connection which fathers and daughters don't get to have that they used to they used to be able to have. It really was a father's role to be a sort of shepherd and to really ensure the protection of his daughters and to really vet quite closely her suitors 
And this was all very good and healthy because it ensured a responsible uh, transmission of the genetics, a responsible transmission of the family line, of the heritage. And now this has been blown away by pornography. Pornography is this great leveling force of communism that is that has sort of destroyed this important part of our society. So if we really want to take care of our daughters, if we really want to do right by by our daughters, we need to get we need to recapture this wholesomeness with these Mel Gibson films I was talking about, with these 1950s datings sort of things. And we really want to start to empathize with ourselves. How is this detaching us from the women that are in our lives? So that's something that I had to add there. So. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, looking at the sympathy point of view and where, why, why people are being driven to watch porn, obviously we can talk about the negative effects of it as a society, but I quite sympathize with a lot of people who have to go and end up doing that. First of all, you have to blame the guys on the first half who uh, have been told that you know masculinity and, and dating or anything like that is absolutely horrendous in school and any boyish behavior is you know, fed with Ritalin, that sort of thing's been going on. So they're not masculine anymore. And then the second thing is men don't know how to speak to women anymore. They don't even know how to start dating because they've outsourced all their social, all their networking onto apps and Tinder and things like this, which completely turns you into a, a, a loon whenever you, you know, go out into the real world and actually have to do this. And then also, I think a lot of men are kind of put off by the way that a lot of women have kind of rejected gender roles in the UK and become quite undateable. I mean, I was watching Channel 4's Undateables last night and I realized that it'd be much more suiting just to have feminists on there rather than the actual characters because it would be more fitting. And I think men are just giving up on dating for those reasons because they think, well, you know, I have to go on a date with a woman and this, you know, with a lot of you know, left, far left women, which is the majority now who want to go on about how you know, they don't want to have a family, they don't want to settle down, they don't want to do anything, and they, they want to, you know, pay for a half and make a big deal out of it and just be completely obnoxious. And, like, I think men are just kind of sick of it. They'd rather just go home, get a sex doll or something. So I could kind of sympathize with what people are doing. Men's fault and women's fault equally, but it's because of our society, really. It also speaks to a level that when you watch porn, you become really blind to the people around you and how it affects the people around you. I used to know a gentleman when I lived in the UK who had gotten a divorce, even though he lived with a woman. He'd gotten a divorce and he was feeling very emasculated. And his way of coping, I guess, and to have something positive around him would be to hang pornographic pictures of hot women in bikinis all over his house. And this man had young children under the age of five walking around the house. And he had these pictures like in the living room, in the kitchen, and his girlfriend was there seeing them. And I don't know how you can possibly think that's okay when you have little ones around and it showcases that you don't have values. So I really think when you watch porn and that becomes the new normal and you think, well, everybody watches porn, you don't see how it seeps to other parts of your life potentially and how it harms those around you. I completely agree with that. I mean, as I said before, I did a video on YouTube, it's still available, called The Jewish Role in the Porn Industry. And one thing I want to add is the women involved in the porn industry are also um, defined usually by their beauty. They're very beautiful, very young women. Often they're referred to as nubiles because they're meant to look like they're sort of um, 18, 19, 20 sort of prom queens. And these girls are abused. It is absolutely horrific what is done to them. And it is a form of abuse. They are sodomized, they are treated like pieces of meat, they are often beaten, they are often degraded and humiliated. And many ex-porn stars have actually spoken about the abuse, have spoken about having to be on drugs, about having 
literally being forced to do things that they never wanted to do, being sat curled up in a ball in the shower afterwards, crying their eyes out because they were told it was going to be this glamorous industry and they were going to be treated like princesses. But really, they're just they're treated worse than animals. And I believe the people who do this get something out of it. I believe this is another form of anti-white hatred. And if you look, listen to the video I did, and one of the world's foremost experts on the Jewish role in the porn industry, a guy called Dr. Nathan Abrams, said that those producing porn are motivated by an atavistic hatred for white Christian society. This is a way of degrading us. And if you look at the way these girls are treated in the porn industry, you can form a direct parallel between the way that the girls are groomed by Muslims in places like Rotherham. These girls are put onto drugs. They are given huge amounts of alcohol. They are told they are beautiful. They are told they are loved. They are told they're going to be these little princesses. And then they're abused. And then these young white guys who obviously want to see these beautiful young women have sex, they're watching that. But then, like Stephen says, it's not about natural loving sex that will make a woman feel valued. They want to be grabbing her by the throat and sodomizing her and they think all of that's normal. And it's not normal. The woman doesn't feel loved. The man just wants to abuse and degrade his partner. And it's another barrier between natural relationships forming. And it's another barrier, therefore, towards forming nuclear families. And what do we need to do? We need to form nuclear families and we need to have children. Porn is an attack on Western civilization. I think something else we could add here is that, uh, from what I recall, the average age that boys are being exposed to pornography right now is 13. Um, and it has been associated, early sexualization of boys and girls is associated with what we refer to as our selected traits. Um, and under that, you might put promiscuity, lack of ability to bond with one partner and have a healthy relationship with them, uh, lack of feeling an incentive toward investing in your own children and therefore single, father, single parenthood, single motherhood more like. Um, and just yeah, living a very reckless, you only live once type life, not caring about the future, not caring about what future generations are going to have to live with. And a lot of this is associated with early sexualization in the scientific literature. So I find that interesting. And I don't know if this is causal, um, but I think um, there's a man called Jim Penman who's looked into this and he's, he's actually... Uh, done experiments on you know mice and rats and things and basically when they are exposed to early sexualization it um it causes them to it just basically disrupts the rest of the natural uh life they they do such things as not caring about their own little rat pups you know not going to retrieve them when they're going toward a dangerous area that kind of thing and unfortunately that does seem to mirror what we're seeing happening in society um uh, Peter, do you have any comments on that? Well, I mean, yeah, as I said before, I mean, what they're doing is that, I mean, as, as I said before, I mean, uh, the, all of the young people that I met have been, are watching porn, 
regularly. You know, I used to uh, I used to work uh, with some yes with some guys, fifteen, sixteen year olds, and all of them watching. And it seems like yes, as, as you said, more and more are getting exposed to it as in a younger age. And obviously, that will that will affect their brain. And uh, and and as Mark said before, it's it's going to end up with. Uh, as an attack on the nuclear tradition family. I mean, I think everyone has made really good points on this here. Um, I don't think I have that much more to add other than that, really. Um, I can say, um, it's, I don't know if it is related or not. I have read something about, um, you were talking about our selection stuff. Uh, there's actually some, uh, some tribes in Africa uh, where they have uh, when 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 the young boys turn, I believe ten, eleven, twelve, something as a kind of initiation ritual, and actually have these young boys to go and have uh, sex with uh, with some of the older women in the tribe. Uh, so maybe that kind of points to. It's not something that you see in European culture at all, but it's something that you can see in some other cultures around the world. So yeah, it's typical. Yeah, maybe maybe it's a bit, yeah. Maybe maybe it's a little bit of that. Try and get the. You know, try and get the boys to become more, try to get the European boys to become more uh, kind of African culture. If you if understand what I mean, I don't know. Yep. Just In, a uh, suggestion there, a thought. Well, I just wanted to point out that sometimes you see these silly people saying, oh, girls should get married when they're 18, etc., because they think this is somehow more traditional or whatever. But if you actually look at the time, in Western civilization that I consider to be the most civilized, like the 1800s, um, 1700s, and the most civilized, advanced, innovative areas of Western Europe, which is like England, France, Germany, Italy, um, you'll see that the average age that women got married in lost their virginity was 25. So that's actually demonstrating case selection. You wait until the mother is mentally and physically mature and capable, because remember, women's brains are uh, basically uh, cease to grow at 23. So it's kind of crazy getting married at 18, right? Um, so that's that's basically the gold standard for the most civilized civilization on Earth. So I think we should probably kind of go for that. Um, what do you think about that, Brie? Sorry, I forgot to turn my microphone there. I have seen successful couples get married around 18, but those were very rare individuals they just happen to be extremely mature i do see a lot more in the south that young people tend to get married and they tend to be quite successful at it but i completely agree about our selection and waiting till you're maybe in your mid-20s because i'm a completely different person than i was five years ago and even in my mid-20s i was a completely different person from who i was at 20 and there's something to be said about waiting till you're emotionally mature enough but then again not waiting so long that all the good guys are taken there's this idea that a lot of women have that they can wait till they're about 30 or 33 and then start thinking about having a relationship and getting married and having kids rather than having a career and by that time unfortunately the ovaries are starting to try starting to dry up a little bit so there is something to be said about searching when you're younger and maybe getting married in your mid-twenties when you're emotionally mature because that's when you have the most energy to run around with your little ones and you don't need as much sleep whereas I don't know about you guys but the older I get I feel like the more sleep I need I think that um, 
really when you're forming relationships the important thing is knowing that you're with the right person and my advice is if you think you're with the right person if you think she's the right woman the best thing you can do is move in together as soon as you can now obviously marriage laws are hugely skewed against men so i'm not saying marry her instantly because i know that if you've got your own house or if you've got large savings you can end up losing everything to an unscrupulous woman but i do suggest if you find somebody that's really right for you move in and live with them for six months to a year because if you can live with somebody for a year and you can get on with them and they're still your soulmate and every morning when you wake up next to them you look at them and think wow that's the woman i want to be with for the rest of my life and she looks at you and thinks the same thing and you get on because you need to see the best and worst of someone before you commit and in today's world where we're governed by instagram and facebook and twitter people are very very good are putting over an awfully false image of themselves this image that's almost like for the media and you need to cut through that and I think when you have lived with someone you see the real person and my advice is make sure you find what somebody really is before you commit but if you can last a year living with someone and you're still in love with them you still wake up and they're still the object of your desire and you don't get on each other's nerves get married and have lots and lots of children. But remember this, marriage should be for life. And I mean, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And when you're running a sprint, you can cope with a bit of sand in your shoe because it's only a short distance. But if you're running a marathon, a piece of sand in your shoe will just irritate the hell out of you and it'll ruin the whole affair. And believe me, if somebody grates on you over time and they're not the right person and you've married them, that is a that's a big mistake and if you bring children into that environment those children you know can be affected like that so i wouldn't rush people into marriage but i'd certainly say if you can uh, you know if you can live with somebody for a year and you still get on and you still do that then you're made for each other and have lots and lots of white babies that's the key can i say a response to mark there saying uh, regarding moving in for a year uh, I would say I would strongly disagree with uh, moving in for a year with someone uh, without marrying. I think that's uh, I think that's degenerate, <laughs> to be honest with you. <laughs> you know, there's risk for quite a lot of stuff going on here. We could get like um, we could get children before marriage and so on here. That's uh, quite a big risk. Uh, so I would uh, I would I would say I would strongly disagree with that and say instead that uh, they should uh, you should date and get to know the person really well instead. But don't don't move in. Uh, I would say save that uh, for for after marriage. That's uh, that's that's the more traditional. Bit, I would say. Well, Mark, I, w I was going to say something, but I want to. You know, if you want to respond to Peter here, call. He's calling you a degenerate. Can you uh, can you tolerate that? Right, you Swede cook. It's time <laughs> to take the gloves off. It's time to take the gloves off. You fled England and it was the right time to flee. Because if you were still in North Yorkshire, I wouldn't be on this stream now. I'd be driving up to North Yorkshire to show you a really, really painful evening. Oh, I sound like an 80s wrestler, don't I? That's quite, it's quite a good promo. Um, seriously, I do understand and I respect what Peter is saying. He's coming from a, a traditionalist position. And believe me, 
I think his position is, is actually sound. If we were talking about 70 or 80 years ago, when people were more stable and more likely to appear as they actually are. Whereas in today's world, I have met men who have married women and done exactly what you've said and have ended up divorced within six months. And all I'm saying is people have to be sure. And I'm not talking about promiscuity. I'm not talking about bouncing from bed to bed or MGTOW or anything like that. I'm just saying, I do believe there is a certain amount of mileage in getting to know somebody properly first. And from my personal experiences, I've met girls that everyone's loved, my family's loved, all my friends like, wow, she's wonderful. And you move in with them, and within three months, they're a completely different person because all you saw of them was them in their best sort of uh, their best way. You saw them at their best because they came over for a weekend or you went out on dates and it was their sort of show face. But when you see somebody morning in, morning out, and you're both getting up and going out to work and doing things like that, it can change a relationship. And you tend to see the real person when you live with them. And, and as I said, that's just my advice. And I too totally respect what you're actually saying because, and I do think it's applicable to people of say my parents' age, you know, they didn't live together until they were married, but that was a very different time. And I think people have changed and they have been degraded by things like pornography, the media, Hollywood, you know, the music industry, the education system degrades them. And I think all of those things have an effect and can make it much more difficult to, um, you know, find the right person. And I just urge a little bit of caution, but in no way am I going MGTOW or anything like that. Well, I mean, that's, that, I think that's what you should do, extreme vetting, you know, extreme vetting about uh, you know, that's, uh, that's some of the skills you need to learn, how to do extreme vetting, how to read a person uh, that's part of, uh, of life. And uh, I think uh, also if you, I mean, yes, if you do, if you move in with a person, I mean, you get to kind of test run it for a little while, as you, as you kind of alluding to. But still, I, don't, I think it's um, the traditional way is to... Is yes, to but are you, are you looking at it? Funny. Are you looking at this as a better thing because it's old and because it's traditional or because it's better? I think people can sometimes look at the past and say something's better just because a lot of time has gone by and it was in a good era. I think it's good as a society to develop and become you know, a better society to learn from the mistakes from the past, to build on the good things and to drop the bad things. And I think looking at it from a merit point of view, moving in with someone, moving in with someone and trial and testing it out is an extremely like logical, rational thing to do. I think it's really important. It's good for longevity. You say that, you know, people were, you know, more and more, more people were married back then, but more, more people weren't necessarily happier in those marriages. You had a lot of women who were really deeply unhappy and they regret, and a lot of couples who didn't separate and who, who had a really, really horrible marriage because they didn't, you know, because it was really constrained. Their neighbors would have looked down on them, blah, blah, blah. And I think a lot of them in hindsight would have said, oh, I wish we could have tried this out for a year. I wish we could have tried this out for a few months. So, yeah, I think I think it would be very good to sort of try that. I think it would make us quite a good society. What do you think? But the thing, is, but the thing is, if you if you do this um, kind of trial and error thing, the risk you will get is that you will get people uh, kind of uh, uh, jumping on the 
carousel and uh, start okay now this doesn't really work for me okay we, they're not that committed so they might just live a year and then uh, riding the kind of uh, cock carousel as, as, as you say well it's still better uh, than them being married unhappily well but, i mean the thing is it it, it it it's it gets into this mindset that okay it's not we're not committed okay we, we can just live live together for the year and try okay yeah, it worked okay let's just move on to next next guy it will just become this carousel thing and okay, that's the risk you take away the beauty of uh I, of let's marriage. hear from the only person on the stream who is actually married hey okay so i'm married happily married uh my one year anniversary is coming up in a couple months and i wanted to just throw in my two cents there's i sort of have a third point of view on this and that's that a lot of the social infrastructure needs to be in place in order to pull off the traditional thing. And our society is so atomized, our communities have been so shredded apart that I can see the argument for sort of trying it out before you buy it. Uh, you know, but that being said, we should strive for the ideal that there is this social infrastructure in place to support marriage. And that was something that I, I've been with my wife now, I've been with her for many years. And we were very confused. She was a feminist when I first met her and I was sort of think I, I applied all my case selected energy and motivation and ambition to our selected sort of pursuits because I thought that li the liberal sort of narrative was the moral narrative and so I had to come out of that and I came into Ron Paul and libertarianism and all this stuff so anyhow when we sort of met I had some social infrastructure in place that allowed me to vet my wife and her me that I don't think a lot of people in this sort of atomized society get to have. So I, one of the very first things I did with my wife when I started dating her and when we, we started to realize, okay, we want to go exclusive here, was I took her to my friends. I had many friends. I was in a, I was in a music scene. I, was, I had buddies and I would go and I'd, I'd invite them over or I'd have her and them meet. And I'd, okay, I'd see how they interacted with each other now, for, formally, when we're talking 70, 80 years ago, this would happen with the family. You go, oh, you go and you meet the family. But now all these young people, they, they're individuals, and they move to the city. And there really is no social infrastructure. You go to the cities, because that's where the printing presses are, and that's where the government's pumping up the economy, and you grab all the money, and you have sex, sex, sex. And there's nothing, there's no stability, there's nothing in place. Now, I, I had enough in my life, and I've had a good sense about things for a relatively well a long amount of time that I took my wife and I, I had my friends talk to her. Hey, and then I'd say, oh, what would you think of my wife? What would what, what, you think of my girlfriend? What'd you think of her? And she did the same for me. Oh, there's a birthday party. So-and-so's having a birthday party. I want you to come. And then I'd go and, you know, I'd be in like a collared shirt and I'd just be dapper and I'd be talking to her friends and they were all feminists. So it was a hard sell at the time, you know, but, but I sort of won them over. And that's, what, that's really what allowed us to see in each other that, hey, there's really a lot of virtue here. There's going to be a meaningful connection here because many people are buying in. This isn't just two individuals going, hey, do you, do you cook well and do you do, you do good fucks? And is this, is this a good setup here in the city? It was like, oh, there's a, there's a community and there's some people. And we really want to push, I think we want to push the family as a social infrastructure. Of course, we want to push friendships, and that's what we're doing here on this show, but we really want to push the family so that people can start to have communities so they can start to settle down again. 
I mean, we're in such a tumult with all the third world just pouring into the first world. You know, we need things to settle down. We need to close off immigration. And we need to, to let people build these bonds again so that there's more accurate vetting for the romantic process. And that's sort of trusting in the genius of others. And that's a little bit more altruistic than saying, well, you know, there's a, there's a, every individual's got to decide for themselves. I think that's nonsense. We need to get back to the social infrastructure of the family. So my two cents. Well, really, your opinion is the only one that actually matters because you're the only one with a wife. So, you know, <laughs> I can't. I, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna argue. I don't know. You, you're not married, are you, Peter Sweden? Yeah, no, not yet. No, neither am I. Neither am I. I'll keep so an eye. We, we, we both drawn the short straw on that, despite our differences. But can we have ah. a friendly high five to prove to the audience that we're still friends? No, well, I'm, I'm only, I'm only oh, 23, so, <laughs> so I've still got time. You had a mate. I thought you were as old as me. What? <laughs> no, I'm joking. It's just, just a bit of banter, just a bit of banter. So let's move swiftly on. We've talked about lots of good stuff tonight, and we had a lot of other topics we were going to um, cover, but we can move on to the questions. But interestingly, there's been a couple of questions on actually topics we were going to cover tonight um, and one of the things that got mentioned in the chat earlier was about the famous tranny Munro Bergdorf that we discussed the other week um, because she doesn't like white people very much. Now she's been back on the BBC saying that all, all white people are oppressive racists, all of us. Now, I can only say that if somebody went on a national TV show and branded all of another race in a negative term, they would probably be in prison now. Um, does anyone have anything to add on this? Yeah, I mean, Mr. Monroe is one of the most ridiculous people I've ever come across. I think, you know, he keeps going on these television. The only way he can get on television is to say something completely outlandish and controversial without any backing, which is why it falls apart within seconds of being on television. I mean, he keeps going on about how, you know, whites are the most oppressive, horrible, degenerate, racist people on earth, which is bizarre because the only thing whites have done in their colonial past is go and basically politely gentrify the rest of the world. We went to India and gave them roads to shit in. We went to Africa. We gave them towns and cities to burn down we did lots of great things for the world so i don't really see why you know we have so much to apologize for if you look at the top 10 most racist countries in the world you're looking at africa you're looking at the middle east places mr monroe should probably go back to so it's it's a complete it's a complete joke but it's what gets her on television him on television so that's what uh, that's what he does and it's it's so funny watching his arguments just fall apart as soon as andrew neil or you know any of the commentators start questioning him on very crazy things like facts and statistics. Uh, yeah, he'll disappear into sort of obscurity very soon, but it's funny watching him. <laughs> well, one thing that I like to put on about this was he's raging about white people and how much he hates us oppressive whites. But I was thinking to myself, he'd still have his penis attached if it wasn't for white science and medical advancement. So he better really worry about who he's slagging off because the only reason he is now walking around and masquerading as a she is really because of the white people he hates. So what are your thoughts on this, Stephen? You know, I'm, I'm mostly just going to be crass because that person lives a, a crass existence. So, you know, we used to round these people up and put them in circuses, you know. So that's what we did here in America. So 
That's all I gotta say. I mean, it's just I, I can't even dignify what this person says. They're just such a a, a freak show. So, <laughs> you know, that's where I'm coming from. So, let's get a lady's opinion on this. What does Fashy Bree think about the uh, the tranny who hates all whites? What would you say to this fella? Well, I unfortunately didn't see the video. I saw it being tweeted, but I didn't get a chance to actually watch it. But honestly, any man that's walking around parading as a woman has enough problems on his hand without telling other people what's wrong with the world. I completely agree. Peter, what, what are your thoughts? Would you, would you accidentally marry him before you'd, uh, before you'd even live with him? Well, I haven't seen too much from this story, so I can't comment too much. But uh, yeah, from what I heard, it seems like a pretty um, the white guy. I don't know. I don't. I don't have too much to comment. I haven't seen. I haven't seen too much of it. Sorry. Does Tara have any thoughts yeah, on this? Yeah, I'd say you know I think it's pretty awesome that this um, trannies going around denouncing white people. Um, Firstly, we don't exactly want his approval, but secondly, I think that it means that all the normie whites are just like, wow, what the hell is going on here? And I think it might actually wake some people up somewhat. Um, what do you think, Steve? Oh, yeah, I mean, these things just write themselves. I, this is probably the third time on this show I've said it. It's just, it's, it's loony, and, uh, you know, it's like a, it's a walking contradiction, so... I just, I have fun. It's, to me, it's like tabloid level, <laughs> it's tabloid level crazy, you know? This this, uh, this lady that dyed herself black, <laughs> she shows up on Maury, and she's just like, I, I want to be black, and you know, and all the black people are just like laughing at her, and it's just like, okay, you know, there's limits in society, and so ridicule is gonna inform us. What, what catches on with ridicule, that's gonna inform us of the limits of this society. So this, this tranny is, you know, outside the limits, and I don't know. I just want to. All, all my only inclination is just to take the piss out of him. So, well, that's my inclination too. But Kaylin actually raised some points about sort of let let's just say the less developed nature of other continents, which brings us on to another point that uh, we discussed in the chat before we began the show. Um, and I'll read this directly from the Daily Mail. Woman was raped, whipped, and decapitated in front of a cheering crowd before rebels drank her blood because she served fighters the forbidden fish. Now, I do find this headline, to a degree, sort of quite equally shocking and amusing, really. Equally shocking and amusing. I mean, this woman, she thought she was, you know... She thought she was serving the rebel fight as a tasty meal, but it turned out that it was cooked from the forbidden fish, so she had to uh, pay the ultimate price. Now, these people are called our equals. You've got to remember there is actually a serious side to the forbidden fish story. This happened in the Democratic Republic of Congo, by the way. I always like the way that the, the most despotic of all countries always have democratic as the, the first part of their title. It's always like the Democratic Republic of Congo, where we behead you if you serve the wrong type of fish. And I do think, as I said, there is a serious point to this. These are the people that the liberals call our equals. These are the people that are flooding in to Europe by the boatload. And we're told that if 
they dress in a shoot, suit, shirt and tie or, you know, Adidas tracksuit. They'll just be the same as us. If we put them in a, you know, the council flats in inner city London, they'll be just like us. And this is the absurdity of multiculturalism. But if there's one person on this panel who will have something more amusing to say about this, I'm guessing it's going to be Kaylin. Well, it's like taking you and your family to the zoo and then being absolutely shocked <laughs> seeing all the monkeys throwing their own feces around at each other going, look at how uncivilized these, 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 zoo, these zoo animals are behaving. I can't believe it. I took my children here for a nice time. I mean, why are you surprised? <laughs> Only last year in Africa, in uh, South Africa, the most civilized part of Africa, for some reason, um, was uh, there was a story where 200, 200 citizens had admitted to eating human flesh in this cannibalist, cannibalism case. I mean, this stuff is going on constantly in Africa. I don't know why we have any expectations from people who can't seem to invent a wheel or build a house out of anything other than materials, sand and mud. I mean, it's, 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 it's so exciting. still surprised and why they expect anything to come out of Africa other than... AIDS. Brie, what's a lady's point of view? Have you ever have you ever served your partner the forbidden fish? And if so, what was his reaction? Well, I have bought him catfish recently to cook this week, so if you don't hear from me later on, I guess we'll know what happened. No, just kidding. Well, I, I, if anything, I hope that reading this type of thing will red pill some other people out there into how barbaric and medieval these Islamic countries are, and not just down to Islam, but these Arab nations. If you go on to, I guess, Periscope or some of these different social media apps where they showcase executions and Muslims uh, tearing places up and bombing them, you always see the other Muslims in the chat like laughing about it, loving it, cheering it on. You see uh, pictures of these gays being thrown from rooftops and people are cheering down below. Like they love it. And I'm hoping that might, might, being a strong word there, might wake some feminists up as far as a woman was out there trying to be helpful, trying to feed her man, trying to do what's right in uh, nurturing the men out there, doing the hard work, and she paid the ultimate price. So if this doesn't show other women out there how barbaric these cultures are, that they're backward and they should not be coming into our countries, nothing really will. I heard Milo say at once that we didn't learn our lesson after 9-11. I think that's true because we started favoring Muslims even more and letting them into our countries. And we need to report on these type of stories as much as humanly possible so that it gets shared on Facebook and shared on Twitter so we can get as big a reach as possible to share with people that these Arab nations in these countries in Africa, like Caitlin said, that haven't even invented the wheel, have no place among us, and we actually do them a disservice by helping them because when we help them, they can't build a better civilization of their own. When they're high IQ people come all the way to our country to succeed, they can't build better roads to shit in in their own countries. So we really just do them a disservice as well as ourselves. Well, there's there's something that, uh, I think it was George Lincoln Rockwell or it was William Luther Pierce, one of the two, I sort of mix them up now. He was saying that, you know, taking factories over there just turns them envious. It takes them from a sort of life of, you know, uh, you know, just sort of like looking at the trees and just, you know, sort of biding their time and living in the sunshine and not really being sure what's coming next. And, and it gives them this industrial existence that makes them envious of Westerners. And, but it also impoverishes the West because it ships factories overseas. 
So, but this, you know, at another level, this stuff is no joke because now we're seeing in places like Minnesota, there are doctors that are doing female genital mutilation. And there are, there are polio outbreaks and measles outbreaks and stuff like this. So we really are importing all the third world problems. I would really just like to have first world problems. You know, I'm not into this sort of third world stuff. So I've said my piece. So. Yeah, we've spoken about HIV and everything. I mean, that's a that's a third world problem. You know what happened? Some African either mated with or ate a monkey, which gave it HIV, and then it somehow spread through homosexuality to the US. So it's like, whoa. Uh, I think personally, it would have been best if we just quarantined sub-Saharan Africa when we found it. But unfortunately, we can't turn back time. Um, should we move on to the next topic, Mark? Yeah, well, it, this actually leads on to something because we're talking about these people coming to the, the West and there was obviously a huge article in the press recently that these, the government are saying there's roughly a million illegal immigrants that have entered the country relatively recently. And that's a phenomenal number. I mean, you know, the city of Manchester, I think, has about 500,000 people. So that's two cities the size of Manchester. It's, it's phenomenal. And it's more people than came to Britain between 1066 and 1939. So that, that tells you the scale of the influx of these migrants. But currently, the government is now saying that these people are going to be allowed to stay. They're discussing an amnesty for this million immigrants. And my question to the panel is, is there actually any need for border control when it's all such a farce? What is the point of having, of, of any of these governments claiming there is border control when anyone who actually does manage to get through is granted amnesty anyway? Kaylin, your thoughts? It's so depressing thinking about these things. You know, it's justified. Oh, well, we were mean once a few hundred years ago, so we shouldn't have any borders and we should, you know, put burqas on our put burqas on our grandchildren and just send away our culture. It's, it's so sad. So yeah, we've had a million people. That's just the uh, that's just the official number. Most people are hiding away in sheds and things like that. So no one knows what the real number is going to be. Look what happened at Grenfell. At Grenfell only a few citizenship just because they happened to be in a fire. I mean, I didn't know happening to be in a fire gave you some sort of rights to live in a country. Very strange. Um, uh, but it's just depressing, and and we know these numbers are so much so much higher than they really are. They're driving down wages. They're completely destroyed, diluting our culture. They're doing everything uh, that is the opposite of our values, and it's it's really really sad. And you know who knows where these people are coming from? Who knows? I saw a video the other day of a bunch of immigrants jump, jumping out the back of a truck on the M6, and you think they could literally have come straight from you know the Islamic State. Uh, to fight, you know, to, to come and carry out a terrorist attack in this country. Nobody seems to care. Nobody's learned the lessons from the Manchester bombings. Nobody seems to care. And it's so frustrating. No one's talking about it. Um, yeah, I wasn't surprised when I read that headline. I don't know why anyone is surprised. Peter. No, I think, Sorry, yeah, I think um, it's becoming increasingly clear that these people are determined on bringing in these uh, migrants. So basically... Uh, replacing it's this globalist elite that are uh, doing this for their own gain uh, to try and uh, yeah as as this kind of uh, it's becoming so clear that these politicians when they're talking about stopping mig migration so they're just talking crap i mean 
they, 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 they could easily stop into Europe uh, in the flick of switch. But they just continue bringing the people in and in and in. And start asking yourself, why is this actually happening? Why are they actually doing this? And it's increasingly clear that there is a, uh, this is being done deliberately by, I would say, the globalist elite, uh, the politicians who are their puppets. Uh, and uh, yeah, they're doing it to try and uh, destroy the West because I actually tweeted uh, today the Western civilization is the only thing that is standing in the globalist elite's way uh, of total world domination, uh, bringing the whole world under their slavery for their own gain, for their own greed. Um, and yeah, as I said, especially Western civilization, maybe to an extent, some of the Asians as well. Uh, but mostly Western uh, European people have been standing in the way for that. So they want uh, now through the back door try and destroy that, uh, try to destroy uh, Europe uh, demographically. Uh, so, so it doesn't so, so, so it doesn't stand their way in their way anymore. So they can just uh, go on with their agenda, uh, their new world order agenda. I've spoken about this a lot on Twitter with a lot of. Uh liberals that can't seem to shut up about it always saying well you whites colonized here well you whites had slaves and it's this attitude I can't stand of punish the grandchild for the sins of the grandfather they all want to punish whites for things they did not do to people now who, who have not suffered because of white people and the thing about this immigration issue that I don't know if they really connect is that it gives these immigrants more incentive to keep coming over the border. Well, those immigrants who already crossed over the border aren't being punished. So maybe this is a golden opportunity. We can cross over that border, kind of make uh, those whites feel guilty for their past. Whites uh, are obviously very weak and altruistic, and they're so willing to help other nations. They want to go and help out the world. So why not take advantage of that? And it does make us look weak to our enemies. They know that they can come in and take advantage of our system if they just guilt trip us along the way. And they really end up laughing at us. They know they can take advantage of the altruism that we have for the rest of the world. Right, and, and to just piggyback off of what you were saying, Peter, the, the, the really, and Brie even, there's a, there is a global elite. And they have their big compounds they have their large estates with walls. Yeah, they've got armed guards. You know, this is film. This film series called Resident Evil, and you know, I've only watched one of the movies, but a theme is the Umbrella Corporation, and they've got underground bunkers. They've got they've got sort of big defensive grids set out to prevent them from zombies coming in and infiltrating their installations, while the rest of us. Got to ride around on motorcycles, salvaging gasoline, gasoline, and fighting each other and shooting each other and trying to avoid these zombies. And this is really becoming reality. One of the most prescient films I ever saw was World War Z. All the all the guys are aligned with the mil. All the elite are aligned with the military, and they're able to go to aircraft carriers and avoid these things and, and ride it out. But the rest of us, we got to live with it. And so. So the way I look at it is is they're an outgroup. The global elite are an outgroup, and they're the main perpetrators. The Oprahs of the world, the Richard Bransons, the Rothschilds, the Angela Merkels, all these power elite, they have to be viciously and endlessly derided until they lose their power base and they lose their influence. And we also have to find alternatives 
uh, because they hold all the gold. You know, so we've got to get into Bitcoin. We've got to get into other ways of having influence ourselves that they they can't just hold on to. So. Yeah, and I think we've got to also. Well, people often ask me about you know these use, useful idiots, as it's appropriate to call them. Um, the, you know, the people of color, as they call themselves, and uh, the uh, anti-fas and communists, etc. They think, <laughs> they think if they just tear down the white man, they're going to have everything that the white man has. Uh, but that's not really how it works. The the likely thing that's going to happen is that if white people are, you know, overrun and basically genocided, you know, they're going to have to be dealing with China. And I don't think the Chinese are going to be quite as sympathetic toward them. Um, I think they'll basically enslave most of Africa, most of uh, the poorer Asian countries. And, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll have these massive Brazils all across um, the Americas, and everyone will just be living in slums. So it will really be a dark age, and it'll be horrible for everyone. So I think that they should actually be supporting white people in this fight that we're involved in. And I do have a number of people who actually message me, some even donate to the show to support it, who are black or, you know, of other races. And they can see when white people move out of their neighborhood, things don't get better, they get worse. What do you have to say, Mark? No, I, I, I think that's I think that's a really good point. To be honest, um, you've summed things up pretty much perfectly with with what you've just said there. Once we're gone, the world is going to be a darker place, and I don't mean that in simply terms of like skin color. I mean that in terms of a lack of civilization. I think when we're gone, Europe is going to be a hellish place. People talk about the dark ages. It's going to be far worse when there are no European people left. And I think if you want to take a look at hell on earth, have a look at Haiti, have a look at the Democratic Republic of Congo, have a look at Liberia, because there's all these black people, especially in America, and it's happening more and more in the UK now. These people who tell us if the white man was gone, it would be a paradise. Get a plane ticket preferably a one-way plane ticket to Haiti, and go and live your paradise. Go and live a paradise where people... ...religion is voodoo, where people eat cakes made of baked mud. And tell me then, was life better off with the white man, or was it better off in the black utopia? I couldn't even tell if Haiti looked even different after that earthquake they had. It looked the exact same. It's the worst place on earth. Well, something, something I wanted to add to what you were saying, Tara. You don't want the Chinese running the world. I mean, the Chinese are like, they're hoarding all the gold right now, and they've been, they've been hoarding the Bitcoin. They're clever. But if you look at, I mean, their word for black people, if you translate it, it's, it's actually black demon. And they treat blacks this way. They treat them like demons. I lived in Beijing for a year, and they would let the blacks come in. They would let the black drug dealers sort of come in and do some cheap labor, and then they'd crack down on them really hard. 
And some of these guys would just disappear. You wouldn't see them again. And so, you know, these are not the people that we want. This is not the people we want at the helm, but they will be at the helm if whites disappear. I had a conversation about this with uh, Simon Roche on my channel recently, and he was telling me how, you know, in Zimbabwe, they kept saying the whites need to get out or we're going to kill them all. Then once they're gone, oh, yeah, it's a utopia, and then they're all starving to death in the streets. Oh, Whitey, please come back. Same thing is happening in South Africa right now with the farmers. They're torturing the farmers to death with blowtorches and saying, we don't need to genocide them all yet, but that day will come. And they actually had a gathering of some of the black folk there who proceeded to pitch a fit because they realized that they had life better when the whites were there than they have it now since their Nelson Mandela revolution of throwing the whites out of power. So I think they keep talking about having this black utopia. Everything's going to be better once the whitey is gone. And then as soon as we leave, they're begging us to come back. You only need to look at like you said, Haiti or uh, Zimbabwe or South Africa to know exactly what the future without whites is going to look like. Can I say something to Stephen? Uh, you mentioned how the Asians, uh, the Chinese are treating black people. Actually, I don't know if you've seen it, Stephen, but um, actually I saw an advertisement that they had in, in, Ch in China. Uh, they had uh, uh, this, it was this black guy. Uh, it's like really racist. Like uh, if you have it like in the UK, it'd be like, uh, I mean, it would be a shock and horror. Uh, that this black guy was climbing a tree to get a balloon for this little girl. Uh, did, did you see that one? Uh, and he managed to have to get up a tree to get the balloon. He came down and gave it to the girl. But then this Chinese mother comes away screaming, takes the girl with her. She, she doesn't want uh, her little daughter to, to get a balloon from black guy. And this black guy goes home really sad. He lays down in his bed. Uh, and uh, then it just then, then it, the the scene changed and he turns into toothpaste uh, on a toothbrush, uh, and it and, and the point is uh, not 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 everything black is bad because the toothpaste was is black colored, <laughs> like like imagine that like airing in the UK. I mean that's like super racist. If they wanted to make that realistic, they just have the black guy shoot the mother as soon as she <laughs> as soon as she criticised him. <laughs> Well, that, that, there was another one I saw. I think it was on the BBC actually, because it was so racist. They had a, this Chinese woman. She was doing her uh, her clothing uh, washes, and uh, she had this black guy coming into the apartment. And she dunked him into the washing machine and put the powder on. Uh, and then the guy came out, all a nice uh, kind of really white-looking Asian, handsome guy out of the washing machine. And the point was like, yeah, buy this washing powder. It's like really good. It can kill you like really well. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just wanted to point out for because we've got quite a few listeners and they, I, I'm aware that they may not all know the history of these countries uh, such as Haiti. Haiti used to be one of the most wealthy trading ports in the whole of the Americas when it was ruled by the French white people. Um, unfortunately, their black slaves genocided all the white people on the island and now it is a hellhole um, that's basically just Africa because it's the people who create the country, there is no magic soil. You know, when you move a load of black Somalis into uh, Maine, you know, it, it, they're not gonna suddenly get like really uh, intelligent and uh, empathetic and everything that white people are. That's not how it works. That's how we've been told it works, but it's not how it works. And we see time and time again, 
you invite the third world, you become the third world. And that is why we don't want our countries to be uh, ruined in that way. Enough countries have been ruined by Muslims. Enough countries have been ruined by African immigration, either through slavery, because then they took the slaves and freed the slaves, or um, just you know allowing them in. Every single country that does this experiences excess high levels of crime, poverty, and just misery, basically. It is not ever in our advantage to invite these people into our countries and we need to stop doing it. Um, Steve, let's hear from you. Well, I was just going to add also in Haiti, they they killed off all the mixies too. They killed off all the mulattoes, the mixed race people. So they didn't just stop at killing all the whites. They killed all the progeny of the whites. Uh, you know, society is downstream from genetics. This stuff is undeniable. And I don't know how many more sick experiments we need from the left at a societal level to understand that race really matters. So go ahead, Kaylin. Yeah, no, I was just backing up Tara's point about, you know, cities with black populations, even in the Western world, even in America, there are no developed, proper, successful examples of black cities. If I went on a night out and woke up in Detroit and couldn't remember what happened, I genuinely would have thought that the human race had been wiped out and that, like, that uh, the war of the worlds had taken place and that the whole world was ended and I was the last survivor or something. That's just a functioning black city. So it's, it's, it's a real shame. Same in Baltimore. You know, everyone knows this shame. And same in St. Louis, highest gun crime in America, black city. Uh, there's, no, there's no example of a successful black neighborhood or city. It's just backing up what Tara said. That's something that they always say, is, uh, that the uh, cucks always say, that... Um, the reason why these cities can't succeed is because they're run by Democrats. No, if you look at Seattle, it's run by Democrats, but it's white and it still manages to function. The reason why these cities like Detroit or now New Orleans are barely functioning is because they're majority black, unfortunately. And I know to the egalitarian mind, that's the most racist thing to say in the entire world. But all you have to do is take a look at every single country that is run by black people, give me one where they have a better lifestyle than white countries. Can I just add one thing? Uh, uh, I think we are uh, forgetting a little bit as well. It's uh, not uh, Muslims or the black people's fault uh, as such as the globalist elites that are actually the root problem here. I just uh, want to remind everyone. I just well, want to add something. Sorry, I just wanted to say that um, it was, wasn't too long ago I actually tweeted out uh, an article quoting the Zulu king in South Africa, who's actually admitted that South Africa was better off under white rule. And if you look at the crime statistics in South Africa, under white rule, South Africa was a first world country with virtually no murders. And now it is the murder capital of the world. And I can tell you this, things there are only going to get worse. That, and the scapegoat for it getting worse is going to be the white people. The remaining white people who live there are going to be in a living hell. And I can tell you this, they are the only asylum seekers in the world that no white country will take. Well, something I wanted to say to you, Peter, was while it's true, the global elite have basically ceded responsibility and turned their backs on empiricism, 
if we don't speak this way, if we don't speak frankly and openly about race, you know, and and sort of promote this idea of having a leadership class in the United States, and if these leaders can't speak frankly of race, then we don't get to see a change. So I do agree with holding the global elite responsible. However, there is a social checking force in these Chinese or Japanese commercials where the black man is put into the washer and he changes over to an Asian. And over there, they're quite fine with this. And, and they're not, they don't have their druthers about this. They, they, oh, it's another commercial on TV for them. And I'm not saying we have to go that direction, but I do think that we have to emulate this social checking force. That is to say, we are race aware and we are aware of the problems and we do see what happens, but we're gonna take responsibility as well. And we're gonna take leadership positions. We're gonna do something about this. I mean, you listen to some of these Nixon tapes. President Nixon was a very race-aware guy, and he was speaking about how the Jews were really powerful, and he couldn't really undo their power. Now we have the Internet, and <laughs> one conversation to Trump saying something like this, maybe in his second term, and the whole thing gets blown open, and finally, finally, people can be in the establishment and be, you know, very race-aware and not be shouted down as racist. So... You know, I do agree with you, but I do think we want to push this in a particular direction. So. Well, there's actually a part in Norway that's uh, been uh, kind of pushing the overturn window quite a bit uh, recently. Uh, I interviewed a party leader there. It's called Alliansen. I just started uh, uh, just six months ago, and I went in this election, and I got uh, uh, quite a good amount of votes for for just having been around for six months, but it got lots of media attention. He actually went on he went on, on in the media, uh, big big public platform, and he actually started talking about Zionism and stuff like that. And uh, he got quite a bit of attention. Uh, and actually, a few just six months of work. Uh, it's been doing quite a lot of overturn window pushing. Okay, I'd just like to interrupt for a brief announcement, um, which is that everyone here um, is either entirely or mostly supported by our audience. So if you would like to um, go and find them and donate to help them continue their work, that would be awesome. Mark Collette's the only exception. He only sells his book, Full of Western Man. Um, but everyone else is accepting donations. I believe everyone else is on either Patreon, Patreon, or PayPal. So those are great options. Um, and yeah, just going back to the topic, I wanted to say um, I'm I'm kind of listening to us talking about this, and you know, also talking about this myself, the whole race topic, the whole race realism topic. And I'm constantly asking myself, you know, are we presenting this in a way that is going to red pill people or is going to turn people off? Um, Let's hear from Kaylin. How do you speak about this topic in such a way that uh, people will actually listen rather than just thinking that you are a horrible, evil person? Depends on what type of personality you are and who's listening. I mean, unfortunately, right now we're, we've got a great audience, but I mean, I think we are preaching to the converted. And I think we are, you know, you need to step with the, the way to red pill people is to, I think, carry on the exact same message, say the same things in the same way that we're talking about now, but to do it on on like an obscure platform to basically do it um you know mix it into a viral video that might end up on the left i don't really know how to explain it but i think most of our content is ending up 
in the same circles and i and i don't think there are any new people not that not, not that many opinions changing uh because i think most people already agree with us who watch us so it's just about figuring out clever ways to get our existing messages to reach the left and to reach people who aren't interested in politics yet and people who have just left university and things like that and I think that probably works by going into comedy, by going into maybe uh, less political orientated stuff, and then to bring out statements in that. I was talking to Bates Alaska about this the other day, and he was saying that he wants to go back into comedy. He thinks he can do more red pilling by dropping in sort of humorous jokes that relate to what we're saying in terms of red pilling people. He said that's, that's sort of the best strategy and the best way to do it. So I don't really know. It's very difficult. Uh, that's his opinion, probably my opinion as well but it's probably one of the hardest things ever because it's such a no-go subject. If anyone listens to it, they just go, oh my God, how could you possibly talk about race? Even if you mention it. So I don't know, it's so difficult. It's, it's, I'm probably not even the best person to ask this. I'm curious to hear how Brie does it because I know that Brie was fairly recently red-pilled. And I mean, how, how has, for example, um, your partner, did he agree with you to start out or did you have to explain things to him? I didn't have to explain things to him at all. He was red pill from the start. Uh, he was introduced to me by another alt-right person as an alt-right man that I could date. So luckily I didn't have any work to do there. He actually managed to red pill me on a few things I still wasn't quite aware of just yet. But as far as how to talk to people about race, I'm kind of with Kaylin. I don't know if I'm the best person to ask because I kind of suck at it. I'm just so logically brained. You could show me a few statistics and I'll be like, oh, Okay, well, that makes sense. And the main video that I watched that really red-pilled me on race and got me to thinking was the interview that Stephen Molyneux did with Jared Taylor. So if we want to red-pill people, my suggestion is spread out the works that have been done by the masters out there. Give someone a Greg Johnson book. Give someone a Jared Taylor book. Share one of Jared Taylor's American Renaissance videos. They're wonderfully laid out, and he's very well-spoken. I really suck at this type of thing. Like I said, I'm just too logically brained. I look at facts and statistics, and once in a while, I'll say something a bit sarcastic, and even my people in the comments will tell me, ooh, Brie, that was a bit harsh. So I I'm a little bit uncensored about these things sometimes and need to walk it back once in a while. So yeah, I don't feel qualified sometimes to even talk about race because I know that I don't appeal sometimes to the average Joe out there. I've had personal friends reach out to me and tell me, Brie, I'm kind of worried about you. It sounds like you're being driven into a cult. I actually had a friend tell me that she thought I was being driven into the cult because of the way I was talking about race, and it occurred to me that I needed to dial it back and be more family-friendly. Like I said in the previous show that I was on for you, Tara, I have a new policy of if I can't say it to my boomer father, I don't say it. So I, if you can explain it to a level that your parents can understand, then I think you have a better shot of breaking these things down to people. Otherwise, yeah, buy them maybe a book by Greg Johnson or Jared Taylor or someone else that you've read that kind of red-pilled you. And that way they'll have it all laid out for them chapter by chapter so they can take it in slowly and maybe you can have a conversation about it. You know, one idea could be to pay for tour buses to just pick up students, to pick up people, and then have the tour bus drive through a black and Muslim neighborhood, and then immediately go to the whitest neighborhood. And then <laughs> maybe they'll see the comparison that's as soon as they get off that tour bus. That's, that's white people's fault. <laughs> yeah, I just thought that'd be quite funny. See, seeing the reaction coming off the tour bus, they might just be instantly red-pilled. I don't know. I wanted to ask Steve. I'm actually, um, well, you know, as my presence has gotten larger on the internet, 
I get more and more of the anti-fad types um, and some of, you know, some of the journalists and things like that who really hate my guts and think I'm evil. And I actually find it kind of strange that there are people out there who don't even know me, um, but who think I'm like the epitome of evil. Um, what do you think about this? Have you experienced this kind of thing for other people? And uh, how do you deal with it? You know, I was thinking, I was actually thinking about that. Tara, with your, you you know, with this persecution that you're facing, I was I was painting my garage over here and just mulling it over, and I don't face this a because I'm kind of obscure still, but b and I'm not saying you do this, but I just have really strong boundaries, and you know this means that. Um, if I sense a sociopathic person is even sniffing me out from a mile away, from five miles away, I will just gently say a few proactive things in a general manner, not to them, uh, but I will talk about manip I talk about manipulation a lot. I talk about abuse a lot, uh, and I sort of point these things out. And this sheds light on the vampires of the world. And there are a lot of vampires out there. That are, that are leeches, they're leeching off of the establishment and off of the cult of diversity and multiculturalism. They get a lot out of this and they their white guilt is very assuaged. And so I'm, I'm into psychology. And so part of my boundaries is to really, if someone's just sniffing around, I mean, they're five, 10 miles out, I'll, I'll say a little something that'll pinpoint the exact price, precise thing that their whole personality hinges upon. This is just how I've dialed in my empathy over the years. I'll say something and that, that sends them away. And it's not foolproof and I, you know, by sort of getting meta about this, I sort of, you know, I'm, I'm not practicing what I preach exactly, but I just think it's important to always acknowledge the self-knowledge self component of things. When we talk about, you know, body language and how this is important, also, getting right with psychology, empathizing with yourself, for me, it's kept me out of conflicts, right and left. I'm not interested in conflicts. I'm interested in win-win. So, so to attach that to the thing we were saying previously is that I want to take the specter of genocide out of, out of these racial jokes and out of this racial checking force. Everyone's fucking terrified at the lowest levels, you know, in the base of their brains. Everyone's terrified of genocide that isn't red-pilled. And so if I can take the specter out of, uh, out of anything that I say is remotely racial, that would be construed as genocidal, then people are, can feel more at ease. So I'm a very warm, welcoming person, but I have not even a drop of attention to give to a person that wants to do something to undermine my growth in this world. So that's that's how I handle it. I know it's kind of psychological, but um, you know, if you, could, if you guys out there that are watching this can sort of break it down and, and sort of see it through and see how you can do it. I'm sure that you'll be a lot more empowered and, and you'll stay out of a lot of stuff. Now, some stuff you, you just don't choose and people latch on and they attack you and they just see you because you're visible, but that's part of success. So these are some of my thoughts anyhow. It's interesting. I, I did a, a, a video for this for Rebel a couple of months ago when Antifa started turning up at my house. I lived in central London, quite like an obvious address in the middle of a main road. So, I mean, 
it wasn't too terrifying because it wasn't like you know I was I had a house in the country that could be firebombed or something or whatever you thought would happen. But uh, I, I I called well reported it to the police. They came around, did a video about it, showed the police statement, all that stuff. They kept coming to the door, taking pictures of the buzzer, sending it to me. London Antifa. for Antifa. Um, but I don't really think they're that scary because they're not organized and they are literally a bunch of like beta cucks. They're just losers. They're you know their parents are all professors. Blah blah blah. They're they are totally totally useless low iq idiots so they don't really they don't really matter they don't really mean anything usually when they come after us and i'm sure there's plenty of them watching our videos i mean the only thing that might come out of that is that a couple of them might become red pilled maybe i don't know they, they don't actually do anything muslims in the uk they're a threat I've actually seen them cause a lot of damage to people, them confronting people like Tommy, things like that. That's scary. But Antifa, just, I mean, they're just a bunch of fucking idiots. So it doesn't really matter too much. Uh, but yeah, they come to my house, they've done all that. They'll carry on doing that in the future. But I just think it's a bit of fun, really. It's just like uh, like being in a fucking, like in the playground. <laughs> Who cares? Well, I've got major experience with this because obviously I've stood in elections and if you stand in an election, your um, full address is published as part of the electoral process. So everyone knows where you live. Um, I lived in a house once where the left put the windows through so many times that the landlord refused to repair them. So I had these excellent... Um, should I say boarded at windows? It was like something out of The Walking Dead. It was certainly zombie-proof, so that was a, that was a bonus. I was thinking if the apocalypse broke out and zombies tried to get in, I would have been sorted. But that never happened, so I just had very breezy windows. Good in the summer, not so fun in the winter. But one thing I'll say about the left coming for you is it means you're doing something right, and you should be like me and feed off their hatred because I quite like being hated by the right people, and. It's a lot of energy coming your way, and you can genuinely have some fun with all that. Um, it's far better to be hated by those on the other side than be ignored, because remember, indifference it really is the greatest insult that anyone can ever, ever throw in your direction. Because if they're indifferent to you, you're certainly not doing your job correctly. I mean, obviously, you want to be loved by your own people, but hated by your enemy. But one bit of advice I would give to people is don't show any fear. Laugh in their face. Because when the left docks you, when they come after you, when they do these things, they do it to make you scared. They do it so that you squeal, so you run off, so you hide. And I've seen this happen to people in the real world and here on YouTube. People who've got their own little YouTube channel, then they get docked, and all their videos are gone, and they disappear, and they run for the hills, and we never see them again. And that's what they want, because you see, when people start to squeal, like the little pig who squeals, and they go running off and go, wee, 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 all the way home, that scares everyone else. And then there's the panic in the alt-right that the left are coming and we're going to get doxxed and it's all high drama. Don't let it be a drama. Laugh it off. It should be like water off a duck's back. It should be a badge of honor that these people come for you. And you should laugh in their faces and say, so what? So what? I'm standing for the right cause. I'm on the right side. I'm fighting for my people. And yeah, you're going to come and you're going to try and stop me. But I'm not going to stop. Because we, we as a group, and this is what I've been talking about for weeks. This is why individualism doesn't work. And this is why we need to stand together. Because remember, remember the symbol of fascism, the bundle of sticks. One stick is easy to snap. It's a 
can be snapped and tossed to the wind. A bundle of sticks, you can take that over your knee and it'll stay strong. And believe me, we should laugh in these people's faces and stand together as a cohesive group. And the stuff that binds us should be our identity, our culture, and our traditions. Beautiful, Mark. It's hard to it's hard to add on to that, but I just wanted to say some of the best advice I ever received is don't fight with idiots because they'll drag you down to their level and beat you with experience. So they're they're masters of being idiots. I want to fight upwards. I really do. I have big ambitions and I want to push some of our people over the top. I want to get them into key positions of power. And so I need to be fighting the elite and not these scumbags that are trying to undermine what I do. So I don't give anybody the time of day that has a smaller platform than me. And I'm always looking to fight upwards. And yeah, of course, what you say, we're stronger together. So I will always have your back if you do right by me and you will always have my back. And that's reciprocity. And that's how you have to earn that uh, socially. So there's a couple of just things that I wanted to add I thought were important. So. Okay, thank you, Steve. And we've been going for two hours, so I think it's about time for us to wrap up. I'd like to start with Bree. Please tell us um, where to find where to find you, what you do, and uh, where people can support you as well. You can find me on YouTube. I'm Bree Fache. I also have my podcast called Twenty Seven Crows Radio. You can find it at Twenty Seven Crows Radio dot com, and you can find a link to all my work at my newly launched website, Bree dot com. And then we'll go Mark, Peter, Steve. Yes, you can find me on my YouTube. I talked about a few of my videos. My latest one's out. It's about, um, came out yesterday. They always come out on a Thursday. It's about Theresa May and how she's pushing an anti-white agenda, blaming us for all the failures of multiculturalism. I mean, the cheek of it. You should check that out. And you can also buy my book, which is available at www.thefallofwesternman.com. And if you can't afford it, that's fine also because there's a free ebook that you can download in PDF format. So I hope you all enjoy that. And as always, thanks to all the people who've turned out. We've had, again, great viewing figures. And you guys really make this an absolute wonderful Friday night. So thank you all. And uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your weekend. I'm Peter Sweden. Uh, you can find me uh, on Twitter at Peter Sweden Seven, YouTube Peter Sweden. I also got my own website that I launched after Hate Not Hope doxed me, uh, PeterSweden.com. So yeah, so they they dox me, I uh, come back stronger. Um, yeah, so that, that's where you can find me. Also Gab as well. I don't, don't use that as much, but uh, yeah, I do independent journalism. Go around. I have some plans coming up here. Uh, some interesting things. So. Uh, Make sure to follow me there as well. Uh, so uh, thanks for having me on, guys. Uh, looks like I'm up. So you can follow me, Steve Franson, at Twitter. You know, if you look at you look at these fine folks' Twitters, you'll see some retweets from me every now and then. And you know, if you come to my, come to me, you'll see them. So you can find me, Steve Franson. Then I'm on YouTube, and I'm on Instagram. So thanks for your time. Love the bants. I'm checking out the chat on the live stream. It's exciting. It's great to be here. 
And of course, you can find me on Twitter at Kalen Rob. And if you go to the Culture Report on YouTube, we're down for the next three weeks while we're building a really cool set. And we're going to come back with some really good shows and some new contributors. So keep an eye out for that. Thanks again. Sounds excited, Kaylin. It sounds exciting, not excited. I need to correct my English there, sorry. <laughs> um, okay, most important thing I should also add is that we'll be back on Wednesday. Same place, same time. So make sure you subscribe. Um, and yeah, I just want to say thank you to everyone for coming on. I think we had a great conversation. Um, and I hope that it's uh, been interesting and beneficial to everyone who's listened in. Please make sure you like and share this show because, of course, the more people we reach, the better. Um, and yeah, I'm looking forward to Wednesday. So I'll see you guys then. Bye bye.